Hello and welcome to Habemus Papam, bonus episode 150 popes and a thousand years. Dear brothers and sisters, Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Habemus Papam. Hey everyone, we did it. We made it through the dark ages. There's still going to be bad popes in the future, but it will never, ever, ever get as bad again as it was in the 10th and the 11th centuries. And in order for us to have our bearings going forward, I want to recap where we have been. And I think it's useful, if not a little challenging, to situate this section of 50 popes within the context of all 150 that we've learned about so far, all the way back to St. Peter and about 1,000 years of church history. So let's go back to the beginning. And just a reminder, our Lord Jesus Christ, in order to continue his mission on the earth, chose men to bring the good news to the world. He chose his 12 apostles. And among them, he chose one, Simon, son of John, to be Peter the Rock. He chose him knowing his fallible nature, knowing that he would betray him, knowing that he would be weak, and that his successors would not be perfect. But he promised to strengthen him by grace and enable him to confirm the faith of his brothers, as St. Luke tells us. And so it has been. Peter went to Rome, and from there, we have a direct line of successors over the last thousand years, 150 of them. Now, these initial successors were fathers to a small, persecuted, but growing church. Many of the earliest popes, as we learned, were martyrs and had a lot of work just dealing with their small flock in Rome. But they also, from the very beginning, were fathers to more than just the church in Rome. We saw in episode four, St. Clement I writing to the Corinthians, in episodes one. In episodes 11 and 14, the Pope trying to solve the controversy over the dating of Easter. And throughout the early papacy, frequent attempts to combat the various heresies which were springing up in the church. Now, as the church grew, it became noticed by the external political world of the Roman emperors. And usually that was pretty bad, but sometimes it turned out all right. In episode 20, we heard about St. Fabian, who both seems to have had a decent relationship with the emperor Philip the Arab and then died under the Decian persecution. We hear about the story of St. Sixtus II in episode 24, who died in the brutal persecution of Valerian. And it's important to realize in this time period, the root of all this, because it's going to help us understand the Dark Ages. Our very modern conception of the separation of church and state, of religion being a private enterprise that you don't really talk about with others and that doesn't affect others' lives, is not present at all in most of human history. Human beings are spiritual beings as well as physical ones. And for society to function, for the most of history, there has to be a common spiritual component. The ancient Romans saw this less in a spiritual way as in a political way. Everyone should be on the same page. Religion was a public good, which strengthened the cohesiveness of society. Everyone, quote unquote, believed or at least sacrificed the same common gods, including those emperors whom they deified. And this caused a strong empire to maintain its hold over the known world. Now imagine you are a Roman emperor. And now you see this public cult, which no longer really captured the hearts and minds of the people, start to get undercut by a strange new religion from the East, one that was taking away not only the common people, but more and more the elites in society. You would be concerned about the stability of things, hence the persecutions. Now, added to all this was the growing power of the barbarian Germanic and Asiatic tribes just outside your border. And we have a crisis. Then we got to episode 32, St. Miltades and the conversion of the Emperor Constantine. And while the religion changed, the imperial mindset did not. 
religion is still integral to the cohesiveness and well-being of society. So Constantine and his successors wanted one faith, one emperor, one church. He wanted everyone on the same page. And they thought that just as Caesar was the head of the faith in the Roman pagan emperor, in the new Christian emperor, the emperor was ordained by God, remember, in this signed conquer, not only to provide a space for the church to flourish, but also to guide it to common stability. So for the next several episodes, we saw the benefits and the difficulties of having a Christian empire, where the church and state are deeply intertwined. Now, luckily for us, Constantine moved his power base away from Rome to the newly created Constantinople. And while it doesn't seem like much, that relative independence from the emperor does make a big difference. In the East, church and state become much, much more intertwined. And each heretical whim of an emperor or empress who tried to bring it to the rest of the world and to unify the church was subjected on the Church of Constantinople first. This is when we had the heresies of Nestorianism, Monophysitism, the Henoticon, Monothelitism, etc. And the powerful emperors tried to impose these beliefs on the church as a whole. Remember what happened to Liberius in episode 36, or Justinian and Pope Vigilius in episode 59, or the last martyred Pope, St. Martin I, in episode 74? So we call this era the period of the Byzantine papacy, one in which the emperor in the East still exercised a lot of political control and influence over the church in Rome and the church as a whole. Now remember, for a while there, the emperor had to approve the election of the pope, and many of the popes at the time had served as ambassadors to the East. But then we had another turning point, the utter collapse of the Roman Empire in the West and the rise of the Lombards, which meant that the popes couldn't rely upon the empire even in the most basic ways. Increasingly, as political authority and power of the empire decreased in the West, the church was the only institution with power enough and stability enough to provide basic services to the people. We saw this with Pope Gregory the Great in episode 64, who basically was holding Italy together with his bare hands. The church became invested more and more not only with the spiritual but the secular power. And the pope more and more became a political as well as spiritual ruler of Rome and the surrounding territories. Added to this was the rise of two other institutions in the wreck of the Western Roman Empire and the pulling back of the Byzantines, Benedictine monasticism and the Frankish Holy Roman Empire. And we'll talk more about those in just a bit. And this is what brings us to the last 50 popes, because as we saw this gradual process of more and more political power being invested in the pope, we saw the secular taking priority over the spiritual. Now, it wasn't all bad. If you remember, we started this series of 50 popes off with St. Nicholas the Great in episode 105, who was a holy man, but whose life showed us that the pope was having to deal more and more with secular affairs. And as the papacy became so closely connected with secular things, and as imperial power continued to decay in central Italy, albeit with certain sporadic periods of security and peace provided by more pious Holy Roman emperors, more and more the papacy became something sought after because it brought power and influence. And this general decay was not only in the quality of popes, but in the spiritual lives of the people in general at this time. And it led to nasty, brutal, and short papacies. We can see that when we consider that the first 50 popes took us through 500 years of history, the second 50 through 329 years of history, and this past 50 through only 222 years of history. The papery, the papacies we have just covered were short, and that was often because they were banished, imprisoned, or outright murdered. We heard about a lot of bad popes, some of whom were downright evil. In this stretch of 50 popes, we had the utter degradation of the church in Rome with the Cadaver Synod, the shameful life of Sergius III, the absolute, 
the absolute dictatorship of Meritsia and the Tuscolani family, their subsequent feud with the Crescenzi, and the craziness of Benedict IX. The papacy became something powerful, yet pathetic Roman families fought over, and papal morals were not much better. It didn't matter if the pope was holy, so long as he was one of ours, and he exercised power to the benefit of our family. And we can see how this flowed from what came before. As secular power became more and more the focus, and oftentimes for good reasons, Gregory the Great saved Rome in a lot of ways, and in good ways. But as the secular power became more important, the spiritual life of popes decayed, and the brutality of the Dark Ages followed. But in the middle of all this, Christ did not desert his church. And we saw over these past 50 episodes a couple of major ways in which Christ continued to protect and guide his church. First, we know that Jesus didn't guarantee to St. Peter that he wouldn't make mistakes, that he wouldn't sin, but rather that he would continue to teach the truth. And thankfully, Christ maintained that throughout these dark years. Even the most depraved popes knew they had to teach the truth. They may not have lived the truth they taught, but they at least taught it. And we've seen two other avenues of God's divine providence working through the church in this time. The first and most essential has been in the reforms of Cluny. St. Benedict, of course, founded Western monastic tradition relatively early in the life of the church, and the monasteries remained for a time places of great stability, holiness, and learning in a decaying society. But in 910, with the founding of the Abbey of Cluny, that spirit was revived in the Dark Ages. Cluny, as we remembered, was placed outside the feudal structure and given to the charge of a series of saintly abbots who cultivated a spirit of penance, of holiness, and of reform. And it was attractive, as we saw. Pope after pope, even some of the bad ones, saw the benefit of Cluny, and despite the general moniker of the Dark Ages, there were some genuine reforming popes who, inspired by Cluny, sought to widen its influence and the reforms it was undertaking. And as we saw with the arrival of St. Leo IX and Hildebrand in the last episode, now Cluny's fruit is finally ripening as the holy monks start to reform the church. The other surprising help to the church during this time was, believe it or not, the Holy Roman Empire. Though not always a total force for good or without political machinations, the rulers of the Germanic emperor, the Ottos and Conrads and Henrys that we've met so far, seem to also have a heart for genuine reform. And every time they were able to exert influence over the situation of Rome, the petty and bloody squabbling between Roman families was able to be put aside, and the Pope was able to be what he was meant to be, a holy rock of faith. We were blessed especially by the great St. Henry II and his wife, St. Cunegunda, who in particular sought to promote reform and peace within the church and to ensure the freedom of the papacy. Now, that's not always going to be the case. We're going to have some fights with emperors coming up. But for the most part over this time period, Christ used them to help bring reform. So now we're through the Dark Ages. Thank God we have more canonized saints and blesseds in the next 50 popes than in the last 50 that we just studied. And we've got more great lay and religious saints as well, inspiring and converting Europe. It's of course not all rosy. The Avignon papacy, the Great Western Schism, the degradation of the Renaissance papacy, they're still all ahead of us. But nothing so dark as what we've come through. Christ works in his church, and even in the darkest ages, he can bring light. I want to conclude with one final thought on where we've been. I bet many of you had never heard the history of the 10th and 11th centuries or about many of these popes. I hadn't heard most of these stories. It's a period we gloss over readily, sweeping it away under the term, that was the Dark Ages. We don't need to know about that. 
But as we've heard, there were some incredible things that did happen during this time. Christ was active in the darkness, just as he is active when shadows fill our own hearts. We are more than halfway through this podcast. We've done a thousand years of church history and 150 of 264 popes. And I think when we think about church history, we don't realize just how old the church is. We think about maybe St. Ignatius of Loyola, but we won't touch him until episode 218. Or we think about the Great Western Schism, which is in episode 199. Or we think about St. Francis of Assisi, episode 174. And we think that they lived such a long time ago. They had all happened such a long time ago. But they are closer to us than they were to the early church. I guess I want to impress upon you just how old the church is. Every empire or institution that has ever existed has not outlast or is younger than the church. I'm not quite sure what my point is here, except that I want you to feel just a little bit the weight of the history of our church. We've been at this a long time. And now in this podcast, we've covered 1,000 years of church history. G.K. Chesterton has a wonderful paragraph in his biography of St. Francis of Assisi, which I think would be a fitting end to this recap episode. So if you'll indulge me, I'll read just a little bit here. He's a wonderful writer, and it's worth checking out everything he's written, but this paragraph in particular is so beautiful. He writes talking about the people of St. Francis of Assisi's time period after what we're talking about now. For one thing, modern people naturally think of people so remote as ancient people and even early people. We feel vaguely that these things happened in the first ages of the church. The church was already a good deal more than a thousand years old. That is, the church was rather older than France is now, a great deal older than England is now. And she looked old then, almost as old as she does now, possibly older than she does now. The church looked like great Charlemagne with the long white beard who had already fought a hundred wars with the heathen and in the legend was bidden by an angel to go forth and fight once more, though he was two thousand years old. The church had topped her thousand years and turned the corner for the second thousand. She had come through the dark ages in which nothing could be done except desperate fighting against the barbarians and the stubborn repetition of the creed. The creed was still being repeated after the victory or escape, but it is not unnatural to suppose that there was something a little monotonous about the repetition. The church looked old then as now, and there were some who thought her dying as now. In truth, orthodoxy was not dead, but it may have been dull. It is certain that some people began to think it dull. It is likely enough that after all those centuries of hopeless war without and ruthless asceticism within, the official orthodoxy seemed to have been something stale. The freshness and freedom of the first Christians seemed then as much as now a lost and almost prehistoric age of gold. Rome was still more rational than anything else. The church was really wise, but it may well have seemed wearier than the world. There was something more adventurous and alluring, perhaps, about the mad metaphysics that had blown across out of Asia. Dreams were gathering like dark clouds over the midi to break in a thunder of anathema and civil war. Only the light lay on the great plain around Rome, but the light was blank and the plain was flat. There was no stir in the still air and the immemorial silence about the sacred town. Now, of course, In our story, we're just now in the middle of that great battle when the church is reclaimed from the darkness and holiness starts to spring up across Europe, spreading from Cluny to Clairvaux, Primontre, Chartreuse, and eventually to the great movement of friars, the Dominicans, the Franciscans, the Carmelites. And it's about to get really exciting. The battle 
is tough, but never again will the church go back to those dark ages we just came out of. We are so, we, we are in for a much more enjoyable next 50 popes as we see the Lord purify and sanctify his church. So stay with us. Next time, we're going to continue this reform with Victor II and our friend, the zealous holy monk Hildebrand. See you next time. Thanks for listening to Albemus Papam. You can check out the rest of the Catholic Bites podcast at catholicbitespodcast.com or find us on iTunes. Thank you and God bless you.